This morning, uh, we're going to continue our study of Acts, and I'm going to use a quote that I've limited myself to using this quote only once a year. Uh, it's, my, it's probably my favorite quote. Uh, it's the center of so much of what I believe. It's by this lady named Barbara King Solver. She wrote tons of novels. She's not uh, a believer, but she said this in her book, Poisonwood Bible, which is fantastic. If you ever want to read incredible literature, this lady has got it. But this is what she says. She says the the, the least you can do in life is know what you hope for. Uh, and the most you can do in life is live inside that hope. Not admire it from a distance, but live right underneath it. Uh, I think this is so telling because this is the work of the human life. To know what it is that you hope for. And to examine it and to, to live underneath it. Uh, you could just, so many of us are just going through life letting our hopes kind of control us and going from one hope to the next. But what she's talking about is the very most you can do in life is not just know conceptually what you hope in, but live right underneath it, beneath it. And then for us as, as uh, people in this world, we ought to examine the things that we actually hope in. How do we hope to see the world made new? How do we hope for our lives to be made new or, or to get better and all those things? If you look to what you hope for, you're going to know the direction of your life. Uh, it actually means everything, which is what I love about that quote. She kind of uh, articulates so well that hope is really what drives the human life. Uh, and today's passage from the book of Acts shows us how the message of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection causes us to perhaps reevaluate our hopes and, and put them up against the hope of Jesus. Uh, and it, it, I believe this passage, even as, as it was spoken in the original moment, radically transformed what people believed in and what they hoped for in the world. Uh, and so uh, if you're a Christian, you know, the least that you're going to know at the end of today is what it is that you believe and hope in. Uh, if you're not a Christian, if you don't believe in Jesus, the, the most you're going to learn is that, like, this is what these people are actually after in the world. This is what they are putting their entire confidence on. And it's from Acts chapter 2. Uh, it's verses 22 to 41. Uh, and this is the middle of Peter's uh, sermon. We talked about the first half of this sermon on Pentecost Sunday in June. We're talking about the second half now. And this is Peter on that day when the Holy Spirit has come. He's explaining what it is that they believe to everyone. It starts with this. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death uh, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David, uh, this King David from the Old Testament, said this about him. I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand and I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead." You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. 
But he was a prophet and knew that, what, that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing that he was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of, dead, of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this life, this Jesus, to life, and we are all his witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out that promise you see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Then he says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is God's word. The context of this is, as I said, this day of uh, powerful uh, spirit embodiment that the people experience, and that crowds had gathered in the city from all over the world. So what happened is the, the people of Israel, they had their kingdom, it got dispersed. A lot of the people were taken into exile in Babylon. I'm going like way back into history. Uh, and then from in Babylon, uh, some people were brought back several year, decades later. Others just kind of disappeared into the other parts of the world, keeping their traditions and their faith. Many years after that, uh, the Greeks came through and conquered that same little piece of land of Israel, and then further scattered people, kind of brought them into different cities. People began to spread out into North Africa, into Asia, into Europe, and then the Romans conquered, and they built really big, powerful roads. Even in the, the first century, you could theoretically take a road from Great Britain all the way to China, and they had built that, and they'd kind of created it, and so the the people of Israel scattered even further, and were all over the place. But they would take these journeys uh, in their life to Jerusalem to be there on the day of Passover. They would celebrate it, and then five weeks later, there was this Pentecost holiday, so they would just kind of go on this big kind of spiritual, religious journey to kind of rest and to be in the place of where they're from. And so there's this big gathering of people from all over. It was on that first weekend of Passover that Jesus died and was crucified. And then this, at the very kind of end of people's travels, and their kind of big vacation time, uh, if you can imagine, it was like a Woodstock of, you know, Judaism. Uh, Tents everywhere. People were like squished together. Uh, People were staying with their fifth, sixth, seventh generation cousins. You know, it was like that kind of big festivities, and they're all marveling at these people that are now uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Peter stands up, and he just gives this quick address of like, hey, we're not drunk. We're not like losing control or losing our minds. It's actually the things that were promised long ago are happening now among us, and so he's, he's speaking to a people, a diverse people, 
uh, a people from India, Asia, Africa, Arabia, Persia, like from all of these places, uh, the scattered Jewish people. He's speaking to a group of people whose lives and families had been altered by circumstances that were not their own, even kind of living in multiple generations of like the trauma and the struggle and the reality of that, of being a displaced people all over the world. And then the other half of them were living displaced within their own, uh, their own country, within their own homeland, having to look to the Roman Empire and then before that, the Greeks, and all down the line of, of not even being in charge of their own home. Uh, they were living in, as foreigners in a foreign land, or they're living as foreigners in their very own land. Uh, some of them were really beat down by all of these circumstances, poor, uh, enslaved, uh, you know, maligned in society. Others were quite wealthy and elite and educated. Some were really successful kind of in all the eyes of the people around them. Uh, and so they were so wealthy, you know, some of these people were able to travel from really long distances. You know, that's kind of a sign of wealth. You know, some of us were like, oh, we're not doing very well. You know, I only traveled to, you know, Thailand this year. It's like, oh, you guys really did. That's funny. Uh, that's, that wasn't a direct call out to you, to the Edwards family. Uh, but it's like, wow, we get to travel. We get on planes and experience the miracle of flight or the horror of flight, whichever side you land on. And that's sort of the case here. These people who could travel had all of these means. But what's fascinating, even if you look at old, old texts, is those Jewish kind of colonies in Rome or uh, in Alexandria and Egypt, they all kind of remained on the outside of the world, even then, uh, outside of the society that they were part of, always looking different. And what I think most telling about what, what Peter's pro proclaiming in the context of the people is that they all kind of remained and lived as broken people in a broken world, and it was just obvious. Even kind of like, you know, if you can imagine your pilgrimage that you might take home to where you're from, and you're, you're there with your relatives, it's one of the best ways to know that, like, the world is broken sometimes, is to go back home and to see what's going on around you and be like, oh, yeah. The world is actually pretty broken. I remember the, the family history. I, I remember my own history. And that's the, the big sense. It all kind of reminds me of this old 17th century English riddle. I know it reminds you of that too. Uh, it, it goes like this. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. You guys know that one? It's great. Uh, I just recently re realized it was a riddle. I asked my kids the riddle, and they're like, yeah, it's an egg. And I was like, oh, I didn't know that. Anyway, I, the, the riddle, it's pretty fascinating. Humpty Dumpty, he falls off this wall. He breaks. He's shattered. There, he's like all in pieces. And then they call on the kings, like all the kings from all the other realms. They come, and they try to put them together, even the king's horses. You know, horses are great at putting things together. I think it's, you know, and they're, they're all together trying to put Humpty, uh, you know, remade and reformed and reshaped, but they can't because it's so broken, you know, Humpty, bless his heart, right? And it all makes me think of this kind of reality. I think it's a, a microcosm of the world and our lives. You know, something has happened. We are shattered. We are broken. The world around us is shattered and broken. We call on all of these things to come and fix us, come and fix this world. We look to all of, we call even the horses 
of the kings, you know, like maybe that'll work. You know, people with hooves are going to put together a broken egg. I don't, we, we call in all of these things to try to make ourselves well and whole again. And then we end up in the same place that that riddle is of like nothing can actually put it together again. Uh, and, and at that point, I kind of want to ask you this question of how do people try to put their lives back together? Or how do people try to put the world back together? What are some of the king's horses and king's men that we call on to fix the world around us or to fix us when we're broken? What are some of those things? Sorry? Political policies. Totally. Like, ah. You know, they're the king's horses and the king's men. Yeah. What else? Educational programs. Educate, yeah. We just like get to braining correctly. Yeah. Yeah, let's get educated. Yeah. What else? Therapy? Therapy? Yeah. Mm. That's where things are yeah, do adventure, do amazing, fun things. Things are hard, I should go have this adventure, then I'll be okay. Yeah. Do, do diets for like an exercise program? Yeah, it's like, oh, if I could just get my body in shape, yeah. Denial. Denial. What problem? What problem? That's pretty good. Yeah, totally. Just the Humpty Dumpty who's just like hanging out. Actually, in Alice in Wonderland, Humpty Dumpty. Anyone Alice in Wonderland fan? Humpty Dumpty is like, no, I tell you what's true to Alice. It's pretty, it's a really great section of that book. Yeah, but it's denial. It's like, no, I'm going to tell you how the world works. And Alice is like, I don't think he can do that. Yes, I can. Yeah. Nora? Oh, I did the wrong. Oh, I'm sorry. Wrong book. Sarah. Yeah, building a space that you can control in your home. Yeah. Any others? Getting more money. Yeah, yeah. Working harder. For sure. Yeah, there's a lot of Right. You can basically come to that resignation kind of moment of, oh, none of this is going to work, so I'm going to deny it and then have some numbing mechanisms to kind of get through it, like, which is pretty fast. A lot of us enter hospice care, like in our 20s, like, oh, I'm just trying to get to the end. Yeah. Yeah. Religion. Religion, yeah. If I just, like, if I can get religion correctly then that, that will probably fix me, absolutely. I think what's fascinating is, apart from like a few of those specific ones, you know, like narcotics and denial and stuff like, those are all kind of good things, actually. Like, we should be engaged in like the political world, therapy's a good thing, our house should probably be in order and structure, you know, like uh, we, we should like earn income so that we can like bless and care for, like that, that makes sense, right? But the problem is, is that uh, in the end, 
uh, we kind of do come to that point of, I'm doing all of the right things, but there's still not something correct within me. Uh, I can't put my life back together again. Uh, The other thing about these people is that they had heard rumors of Jesus. Uh, They were people who had heard about what he was doing. The people who lived there in that in this city and in that region, they had seen him and heard him do the the sort of Jesus stuff for years. Uh, They had had heard these rumors about him calming storms or or probably knew people who knew people who saw a paralyzed person, you know, begin to walk or a a leprosy person be healed and made clean. Like they had heard rumors of this stuff or even heard teachings from friends of friends or maybe they were there themselves on that hillside and they heard Jesus talk about uh, blessed are those who are weak, you know? Maybe they, they heard that, they were kind of adjacent to those truths. Uh, these people were all there in the city uh, the, the months before when he was killed and put on trial. Maybe they were there publicly shouting, you know, like, crucify him, or like they were, you know, somewhere else in the city, but that kind of event is pretty public uh, and pretty known. Uh, there's things that happen in this community and everybody finds out about it within 10 minutes, Right? I mean, in this kind of small city with so many people present, uh, like that sort of information was known. It was public. It was dramatic. The whole environment in which Jesus died was a very, uh, you know, well-known kind of reality of that moment. Uh, They were people who had heard rumors of all of these events of Jesus. It's It's a lot like our city. It's a lot like our neighbor's. We've heard a lot of rumors about Jesus. It's really hard to find someone who, who is like, oh yeah, uh, you know, who is Jesus? I've never heard of that name before. Like, does that happen? Does anyone have that experience in this city? No, like that doesn't, people are like, oh yeah, Jesus, love your neighbors. They might throw in a Gandhi quote and attribute it to Jesus. Uh, most of the Gandhi quotes though are not actual quotes of Gandhi. So it's all real confusing, right? So we're like live there, or maybe, uh, you know, it's kind of like you. You've lived your entire life adjacent to God talk. You've heard the stuff about God your whole life. You grew up in a church, you went to Sunday school, you were in classes like the kids are in, and you kind of heard all of this stuff, this Jesus discussion. And Peter stands up and he speaks the truth and the reality of Jesus to both this confusion about what can fix the world and into this, I've only heard rumors, but I don't know the truth myself. And so if you get anything from this morning and from these words of Peter, that's what you're going to get is Peter's articulation of the truth and the hope that you get from Jesus, which is hope has arrived. The world is getting made new. The chains of sin, the reality of death, the burden of evil, it's all being overthrown once and for all. Uh, Peter does this uh, by first by explaining the facts of Jesus, uh, just historic acts of Jesus. Uh, the, the elements central to the message or the gospel are historic elements. Uh, I just want that to be clear, like the, the, the central things are, are stories and moments that happen in human history. Uh, the, the core of the Christian faith is not a bunch of tenets to believe or philosophies, It's a list of events that have occurred. Uh, The heart of the Christian message uh, kind of finds itself in this historic human week. Uh, You can even, like, AD 33, April 3rd, 4th, and 5th. Like, they're that historic, okay? Uh, And so first, Peter says there's this fact. 
He was alive. He had this life. Uh, You can read it in verse 22. Uh, He was a man accredited by God. Among you, he did miracles, he did wonders, he did signs, which you yourself know and which you yourself has seen. Uh, He had a life that was filled with bringing peace, with uh, reversing death. He had a friend who was dead. He brought him back to life. There was a a child and a widow who he brought back to life. Uh, He saw captives set free. He calmed the sea. He had authority. Peter's saying, this is true, and you all know it. Like, you know he lived that kind of life. A life full of love, a life of presence relationally, a life of wonders and miracles. That happened. You all saw it, right? That's fact number one. Then he says that this man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God and his deliberate plan, and you killed him. With the help of other people, he died. That's, that's fact number two. Uh, Jesus' lungs stopped breathing one day. His heart stopped beating as he was on the cross. Like one day you and I will experience that. His body uh, began to shut down and then fully did, and he was dead. Uh, His death was a cursed death, you know, publicly, uh, a death reserved for the worst of criminals and traitors, humiliating death. Uh, shameful, you could say, even completely isolated. He wasn't surrounded by good friends and family. He was alone on a tree within their whole tradition is like, that doesn't get worse than that. Doesn't get worse. And he died. And that's fact number two. The third fact is that he rose from the dead. Resurrection. You see this in verse 24. That death could not hold him or contain him. He rose from the dead. Freeing him from the agony of death freeing him from the consistency of death. He goes on to talk about his body didn't even decompose. There wasn't a time for it. He came back to life that powerfully, that suddenly. Uh, Dozens of people saw him. The witnesses abounded. At this time, when he was talking about it, you could go and walk up to several dozen people who experienced it and knew it. Throughout the first, first century, sorry, uh, you could uh, have looked up these people who saw Jesus. Their names are written in the gospel. You could have gone to them and said, hey, for real, for real, did you see Jesus alive? And they'd be like, yeah, I did. And here's my friend who also saw Jesus alive after he was killed on April 3rd, AD 33. These are the facts of faith. Like Jesus lived a miraculous life. He died. He rose from the dead. Uh, This gospel, this good news, is a message about a series of events. But here's the thing. You can, uh, these events, though, uh, carry substantial meaning. It's not that they happened, it's what they mean. Uh, This is where our hope actually kind of lives, is the meaning of, of all of that, of that one weekend. Uh, We can all kind of be intellectual and we can be educated and even a a postmodern skeptic and say, yeah, something definitely went down on that one weekend a long, long time ago. I'm not sure what it is. Like you can accept these facts and still not have hope because you don't know the meaning. Uh, But that's, uh, that's what we're all about. Peter goes on to say that it's not just that he did these things but that he is the hope that we've always waited for, that he's the fulfillment of everything that we thought we were going to see. Uh, This is from verse basically 31 on. 
where it talks about how David, King David, a long time ago, had talked about there's going to be this king who comes, who rules with peace and gladness, who finishes his life perfectly and holy, who gives himself for others, and who will be exalted to the right hand of God. David talked about how that king is never going to die. He's going to never stop ruling. Like, he is going to be that type of person. And then in verse 36, Peter really kind of drives it home, and he says, you can be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And that's the meaning of these events. That through all of this, Jesus has become king, Lord, ruler of heaven and earth, all authority, all promise, like he has it. And he is also the Messiah, the anointed one, the, the, the one who will take away the suffering, the sins, the burden, the death, the evil. He's that one. He's the promised one. There's a few really great things. He's the promised one of redemption, who's going to bring redemption. That he, redemption is just about being bought out of bondage. Uh, and that's what his life His miraculous life, and then his death, and then his resurrection does for you and me. It redeems you. You are in captivity, you are in bondage, and his death for your death, his resurrection for your resurrection, brings you out of bondage into freedom. His death gives you life. It's a ransom. It's if you're kidnapped and you're in a dungeon, and Jesus comes and says, I died, I rose again, they get to walk out with me now. Sin has received its payment. Uh, death was defeated. And we're just kind of walking out as redeemed humanity. He's also the promised one of reconciliation. That we have this incredible distance and angst and we're even enemies of God. But then through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, we're brought into unity and relationship with him. And it kind of goes through this uh, progression that we're forgiven. We're forgiven because sin has been paid for. We receive this perfect gift. We've been shown mercy. We don't, like, we don't deserve the death anymore because he took death. And then God pursues us and interrupts all of our life. This is his whole journey of reconciliation. Then he includes you. After he gets you, he includes you into everything. Like you get every spiritual blessing. You get every identity. You get the whole package of the kingdom of heaven on earth. It comes to you. That's your whole thing. And then all God does is then at that point, reconciliation's still not over. He says, I believe that you are now the righteousness that I have. You are just as whole. You belong here. You deserve to be here. He affirms your very humanity that he's remade. And then you're brought close into the presence of the creator forever. That's reconciliation. I mean, that's, that's hard, right? That's a big hill to climb. Like, our politics doesn't talk about reconciliation that way. But he is the promised one who brings reconciliation, and that's what these events mean. It also means that he's the promised one of restoration. That it's not just that now uh, you've been set free. It's not just that now you've been forgiven and brought close and unified with God, but you're also being made whole. You're being restored. You're being set free from the presence and the perversion of sin in your life. Like, Who can put us back together again? Uh, This is so cheesy, I know. Not all the king's horses and all the king's men, 
But the one king, the one Messiah who rules over all, what is he doing with you? He is making you and all things new. He's putting the world back together again. Why? Because he's defeated all of the things that break it. He's defeated evil. He's defeated sin. He's defeated death. It has no hold, no grip, and so he can make it how he wants to. So Jesus, uh, Peter is saying, he sits on the throne. He will make you well. He reconciles you to the creator. He brings you into union with your fellow humanity through forgiveness and through grace. And this, I just want to say, I think it's a big, profound challenge. It changes what you believe about your existence in this world. It fundamentally changes what you believe about how the world operates. It changes what you believe about your next day, your next years, your next decades. And you might think, uh, man, do I really believe that enough? You know, back to the like, what's going to put it back together? Maybe I just need to like believe that more because uh, I'm still broken. I, I still have doubts. Do, am, I, am I in the belief and hope enough? This great quote from Tony Evans. Uh, Dr. Tony Evans is fantastic. Um, you should listen to his sermons instead of mine. Anyway, he says this. He says, faith is not about how much you believe in what you believe. Faith is about believing that the one you believe in is believable. That's pretty great. Uh, we might think, ah, oh, coming into faith and confidence must mean I have to correct and find and remove every system of doubt in my life, and then I get to step into faith. What uh, Dr. Evans is talking about that's so good is he's saying, no, no, faith, the step into faith is saying, no, I believe Jesus is believable enough, that his resurrection is enough, that these facts and their meaning are enough for me, and he will pursue me through the other areas of doubt. And that's what happens for these people in this moment. Uh, it says uh, that they were cut to the heart. Uh, it wasn't just a persuasion of their mind. It was a cutting to their heart, a conviction of your conscience. conscience. Uh, and it gets represented in uh, physical acts of baptism. It gets represented. Uh, you know, realized with words that they actually say, it's a holistic response. Like, how do we step into this belief? Uh, Peter's like, it's all of you. It's an all of you thing. Uh, first, just to mention once more on the mind, you know, they heard what he was saying and they understood it. They understood this hope. Uh, maybe you're thinking like, I might be on the outside of all this, you know? I don't know if I... You know, this message is compelling. It's really great. Restoration, reconciliation, like those are key buzzwords. I kind of want it, but I don't know if I can believe it. Uh, the French philosopher Pascal, uh, who's, he did the Pascal's Wager. Uh, it's a chart, that's why I did that. Uh, which you probably learned in like freshman year of philosophy or something. He said this, I mean, he has a lot more to say about it. He says, even under the assumption of God's existence, is unlikely. Even if you're like, I don't know if God, like it's so unlikely that there's a God. Maybe that's you. Even under that assumption, the potential benefits of believing are so vast as to make betting on theism rational. And what he's trying to say is that this story, the meaning ascribed to Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection, ought to be so good to you. And this is for us, like, when we go out in the world, the good news should be so good to other people that they ought to want to believe it. 
Like, they ought to be like, man, that's not like a terrible thing to actually put your trust and hope in. I kind of want it anyway. Um, And so these people, they heard it, they understood, they were persuaded to full belief. And then they're like, what should I do? He says, repent and be baptized. Uh, This repentance is about changing your hopes and changing your beliefs. What do you think is going to work ultimately? Is it this sort of cocktail of things that we described earlier? Or is it Christ at the center and we're following him and and like he's the only hope and all the other things have to kind of get in line with that? Um, All therapies, all finances, uh, all jobs, all performance, they have to somehow get aligned in this way back in the caboose because like Jesus is the king and he's the one ahead of us. Uh, That's repentance. It's to say, oh, like I'm a mess, I'm in need, he's the only one that can put me back together again. And so there's this internal thing of repentance. Then there's the physical reality. They they get baptized. Uh, Baptism is this once and for all kind of moment. Uh, It's a lot like marriage. Like that's how I describe it even to my own kids. Like you can go down to the city hall, fill out some paperwork and get married, right? It's pretty like simple actually. It's shocking how simple it is. Uh, they should make it a little bit more complicated. Uh, but, like, so you can do that, or you can have a wedding, too, where all of your friends and family and neighbors and business associates and former classmates, just depending on how many presents you want, you invite all those people together, and then you stand in front of all of those people and you say these vows and you publicly say, I'm no longer on my own. I'm now bound to you and you're bound to me. And then you walk out the, of the, you know, the building or the garden or the golf course green, wherever it is, up the sand. I don't know where people go on the beach. It's always awkward. It's like, oh, you're still here. Anyway, you walk out and everybody claps and like, wow, that really happened, Right. Baptism is the same way. Like, you can be a believer and follower of Jesus without, like, putting your head into the water and then coming back out. But it's just, like, not the same experience at all. It's not the same sign to other people around you. It's not the same kind of evidence of belief. And so baptism is, you know, you're saying, his death was my death. His life is my life. I was buried, so in the water you're going down into the grave, and then you're coming back out as a new resurrected person, explaining to the world, all your friends, all your neighbors, all those people around you, you're explaining to them something has happened on the inside, and it's going to manifest itself on the outside. Because what happens at the end of a wedding ceremony is people don't go back to their old houses and kind of hang out and then call each other at night and be like, yeah, yeah, we're still married like filing taxes together. Like, you don't do that after a wedding ceremony, do you? It lets everybody know, oh, from now on, they're going to act like married people, right? The same is with baptism. And so I just want to say, we're going to do a baptism service on October 2nd. If you've never been baptized since you've come to faith and belief and these facts and the meaning of the gospel, this is an opportunity for you. And the other great thing about a wedding ceremony is it reminds all those other people Oh yeah, that's what marriage is. And that's whenever we have baptisms together as a community, it reminds all of us, that's my story too. I was dead and then raised to life. Life to live out faithfully this message, this reality. And so this whole series on this book of Acts, we're asking the question, how does heaven come to earth? Uh, That's what, this is one of the last things Jared Bryant did for our church before we moved. 
made this cool thing. Uh, I think the day he was in his van driving away. Anyway, he made this thing, heaven coming to earth. Uh, how does heaven come? It comes through the truth of this message, that heaven has come to earth in Jesus. His will is being done in Jesus today. That's what Peter is saying. There's a power to it. It sets us free, and there's a purpose to it. It restores all creation. Uh, There's also a, a power of the heaven coming on earth when we speak it and we articulate it to others so that they can understand this message and this reality. And so... Uh, let's be people of belief to this. Uh, it's, it sounds uh, maybe too weak, but we aspire to be a church of belief in a world of skepticism and doubt. We aspire to be a church that says, we actually, we believe this. We know this stuff happened, but we believe he's the resurrection and the life on top of it all. And we also uh, aspire to be a church that speaks this truth in every circumstance or reality of life, that we're translating this good news message to the people around us, that we're speaking in their language, and that as as Peter says here, we've all become witnesses of it. That's in verse 32. He's raised Jesus to life, he raises us to life, and now we are witnesses of it to the world around us. And I believe that there's this incredible guarantee that heaven has come to earth in these things and that we get to see it played out among our lives today. Even though technology has changed, we, don't, we weren't like, you know, even represented amongst the people that were there in Acts 2. But we are partakers of this incredible truth and message. Uh, Jesus, we thank you for the, the power of your resurrection to raise us to a whole new life. God, I I pray for us to be a church of belief. I pray for me and my soul uh, to believe in your power uh, to reconcile me to you. Um, and, And there's so many ways that I just want to earn reconciliation with other people or get people to like me, get people to want me or all of those other things. And God, I just confess, like, I want to be a person of belief that you alone make me well, uh, that you are pleased with me and all of those things. And God, I pray for us as a church to just grow in that kind of confidence, uh, that you would be our hope, that we would live right underneath it in the shade of your goodness. Amen.